to paraphrase someone from some law firm, no brown M&Ms or this podcast is canceled. Welcome to the Device of Albums podcast, where we make utter diva rock star demands for perfectly legitimate reasons. I'm your host, MTI, a typical 35-year-old from the U.S. whose pronouns are he, him. If this is your first time here on the Device of Albums podcast, we look at albums from established bands that divided their fanbase or were otherwise controversial. And on this episode, we're looking at one of the quintessential U.S. rock bands of the late 70s, the 80s, even the 90s. It's time to jump into a brief biography of Van Halen. That was terrible, I'm sorry. So, Van Halen. I'm pretty sure I'm supposed to say something like, Van Halen exploded onto the rock music scene overnight with their 1978 self-titled debut, as the flamboyant and bombastic showmanship of vocalist David Lee Roth, combined with Eddie Van Halen's revolutionary two-hand tapping guitar technique to change rock music forever. And that's not wrong per se. But in music, art, literature, even a lot of non-creative professions, there's the concept of the 10-year overnight success. And Van Halen are a pretty good example of this, even if it didn't technically take them 10 years to make it big. The band that would ultimately become Van Halen formed in 1972, with among others Eddie Van Halen on lead guitar and vocals, and his brother Alex Van Halen on drums. Shortly after forming, Eddie ceded frontman duties to David Lee Roth after realizing it would be cheaper to just put him in the band than to keep renting his sound system. A couple years after that, they added bassist and backing vocalist Michael Anthony, and they were on their way building up their rep in the California club circuit while waiting for that debut album to release. When Van Halen finally caught their big break in 1978, they made the most of it. That debut album was a big hit, peaking at number 19 on the Billboard 200, and going on to be certified diamond by the RIAA with sales of over 10 million copies in the U.S. This was due to two main factors. David Lee Roth being more than willing to play the party-hardy, sex and drugs, lead vocalist Lech both on and off stage, and Eddie Van Halen's guitar wizardry. Now, Eddie didn't invent two-hand tapping. The early 19th century violin virtuoso Niccolo Paganini used a similar technique on his violin, just using his bow instead of his fingers. And Eddie didn't even invent it on the guitar, it was used in early 20th century jazz recordings. But Eddie did do as much as anybody to popularize the style, with songs like Eruption off that debut album. A string of additional hit albums followed, culminating in 1984's uh, 1984, which peaked at number 2 on the Billboard 200 and ultimately also went diamond. It was kept off the top of the Billboard 200 by a little album called Thriller, incidentally. And now for this episode's trivia tangent, a brief digression into that whole no brown M&M's thing. That was in Van Halen's contract, but it wasn't in the backstage writer like you'd expect. It was actually in the technical specs for their stage show. You see, the stage show for that tour was incredibly ornate and incredibly complex, and some venues would cut corners on that setup to the point of it being dangerous to the band and their fans. So buried in the middle of all the technical mumbo-jumbo was a line that basically said, oh yeah, no brown M&M's or we're canceling the show. That way, if Van Halen went backstage and found brown M&Ms, that was the canary in the coal mine that said, okay, they didn't read the technical specs, go back line by line, check everything. And invariably, they would in fact discover problems. Back to the biography, though Van Halen were riding high, there was trouble brewing in Panama. Sorry, but this is so easy. Anyway, 1984 marked Eddie Van Halen's discovery of keyboards, as evidenced by the single Jump, which is one of Van Halen's most popular tunes. 
and Eddie wanted to get more serious and mature and complex with his songwriting, over the objections of Roth, who wanted to keep Van Halen the quintessential American hard rock band, with all that songs like Hot for Teacher and Everybody Wants Some implied that was. And so Roth left the band to pursue a solo career and try his hand at the movies. Now, if a podcast devoted to divisive albums can be said to have a formula, the first album with a new vocalist is some pretty classic ground to approach. Today's album isn't the first to follow that formula that I'll be covering, and I doubt it will be the last with that formula I'll be covering. But there's a good reason for this. My primary instrument is actually the bass guitar, but I feel like the sound of a new vocalist, and how that new vocalist influences the sound of a band, is something basically anyone can detect and appreciate, as opposed to when a band switches, I don't know, drummers, let's say. But before Van Halen found their new lead vocalist, there were some interesting paths not taken that may be more fascinating to what if out than what actually happened. After Roth's departure, Van Halen asked Patti Smythe of Scandal, who had a couple hits in Goodbye to You and The Warrior, to replace Roth. She declined due to, among other factors, being eight months pregnant at the time. After that, they asked Daryl Hall of Hall & Oates fame, you know, man-eater, rich girl, she's gone, private eyes, I could go on, to take the position, but he too declined which was probably for the best. I like Daryl Hall, I like Hall & Oates. But you know how when someone leaves a band or a job or whatever, and they go, yeah, it just wasn't the right fit, and they're just saying that to be diplomatic? I feel like Daryl Hall in Van Halen would have been the rare instance where it just wasn't the right fit would actually have been true had it happened. But it didn't. Van Halen ultimately recruited Sammy Hagar, who had previously been in the 70s band Montrose, and who followed that up with a successful solo career, culminating in 1984 with the VOA album and I Can't Drive 55 single. Hagar, for his part, wasn't entirely surprised Van Halen called him. His position was that there weren't a lot of vocalists with the chops, the confidence, and the reputation to replace Roth, who weren't also committed to other projects at the time. Now the band with Hagar demoed some new material for Warner Brothers Records president Mo Austin, who said, I smell money, when he heard some of the new stuff they'd been working on. That new material, and a bunch of other new songs besides, came in the form of the album 5150, named for Eddie Van Halen's recording studio, which was in turn named for a section of the California Welfare and Institutions Code relating to involuntary placement of mentally disturbed individuals, which, okay then. 5150 came out in March of 1986, a little over two years after the January 1984 release of the album that's, yeah, still called 1984. Was the wait worth it? Could Van Halen survive the loss of David Lee Roth, one of rock's most charismatic personalities and a pretty good vocalist besides? Hello, baby! Well, Sammy Hagar is doing his Roth impersonation right off the bat, isn't he? Here's the chorus from this song. As you might expect, the song is called Good Enough, and it's 5150's opener. And I gotta say, I'm far from a Van Halen connoisseur, but this sounds pretty good to me. I mean, it sounds like they've just picked up right where they left off on 1984. Heck, later in the song, there's this. Hey, waitress! Look at her, man! You got any 
They've even carried over the wacky spoken word monologues. Though at least this one, taken at face value, is just goofy instead of kinda creepy pervy, like the monologue in, say, Everybody Wants Some. So, you know, baby steps here. But despite that song being the opener, it wasn't one of the album's singles. The lead single, and the song that caused that I Smell Money exclamation from Mo Austin, was this one, Why Can't This Be Love? In a previous episode of this podcast, I mentioned the keyboard-oriented 80s smoothness of the Sammy Hagar era of Van Halen. Now, I realized in researching this podcast that the cutoff isn't that clean. Jump is off of 1984, of course, as is the song I'll Wait, which you would be forgiven for thinking that was a Hagar-era tune. But this song here is what I mean when I say keyboard-oriented 80s smoothness. There's a definite 80s gloss to this song. And then there's this excerpt. Only time will tell if we stand the test of time. I mean, technically it's 100% correct, which any pedant will tell you is the best kind of correct. It's also completely meaningless. Using time twice like that in the same lyric, all the words with all the T syllables in them, I cringe and twitch every time this lyric comes up. Now listen back again to that excerpt, but listen for after the lyrics. Yeah, there's a lot of 80s synth sounds on this album, but if anything makes it sound dated in a bad way, it's these Simmons electronic tom-tom drums that Alex Van Halen incorporated into his drum kit. Now, I have nothing against electronic drums as a concept. Def Leppard's Rick Allen used a mostly electronic kit on, among other albums, Hysteria, which sounds great. And I'm not a drummer, but I imagine 30-plus years of electronic drum technology has brought their sound a lot closer to that of an acoustic kit, which you could argue defeats the whole point of electronic drums in the first place, but I digress. My point is the toms here on 5150, contrasted with the acoustic cymbals and snare, have this problem of being flat and lifeless. They sound so different from the rest of the kit that it kind of breaks my immersion in the music every time Alex Van Halen does a drum fill on this album, which is surprisingly often. But these complaints apparently put me in the minority. The song hit number 3 on the Billboard Hot 100, along with going top 10 in Germany and top 20 in Sweden and the Netherlands. Moving on, the next song, and the B-side to Why Can't This Be Love, is Get Up, which sounds like this. This is an interesting song in that it feels like Van Halen's take on thrash metal. 
Of course, it's a good deal more positive than your average Slayer song. It's basically about getting back up when life knocks you down, either figuratively or literally. Tempo-wise, it's similar to 1984's Hot for Teacher, which was a big hit for the band. But they elected not to try and repeat that success here for reasons, I suppose. Instead, they leaned harder into the keyboards on this, the second single from the album. Now I'm going to skip ahead to the chorus of this song. Quick, without using the internet search engine of your choice, what's the name of this song? I thought it was called Higher and Higher until this episode, but nope. It's actually called Dreams. This is incidentally the second song I can think of where you'd never guess that Dreams is the song's title. Yeah, that Fleetwood Mac song? It's not called Thunder Only Happens When It's Raining. Alright, skipping ahead near the end of the song where we'll discuss a couple different things here. First of all, whatever you want to say about this song, or this album, or Van Halen as a band, Eddie Van Halen clearly has still got it at this point. In a retrospective regarding the 30th anniversary of 5150, Sammy Hagar noted, and I'm paraphrasing here, that while during the David Lee Roth era, Roth's flamboyant antics would get your attention, but it was Eddie and his guitar work that would keep your attention on the band. And even after taking over for Roth, Hagar is not wrong here. The second thing I want to mention is that last lyric. Now, I'll be honest, given that Why Can't This Be Love lyric I derided earlier, and given how this bridge vocal goes earlier in the song, I totally expected to hear That's What Dreams Are Made Of here after On Dreams We Will Depend. So props to the band for avoiding that. Now, Dreams was also a hit, reaching number 22 on the Billboard Hot 100, and during the height of Power Rangers Mania in the US, somehow winding up on the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers The Movie soundtrack. But this was the single's B-side, and it's one of the more interesting Van Halen songs I've ever heard. Man, what kind of crap is this? No, I, I don't know. I, I thought it was really going to be different this time. That's the stuff. So, confession time. I enjoy doing the Divisive Albums podcast, and I intend to continue it. But honestly, if I had a do-over, I'd probably call it something different, like the Fascinating Albums podcast or the Strange Songs podcast. As you can tell from a few of the entries, what I actually like are albums from bands that don't sound like those bands. 
whether it's just because they hadn't figured out where they were going yet, such as the first two Yes albums, or Rush's self-titled debut where they're basically Led Zeppelin knockoffs, or just because the band opts for a new sound for one reason or another. The pilot for this podcast was Slang by Def Leppard, which is probably the ultimate example of a screw it, let's just not be us for an album album. These weird oddball entries in a band's catalog are really what I'm going after here. Now this song, called Inside, is a definite outlier on this album. And despite what Sammy Hagar said on his Live from Daryl's House appearance in 2015, I don't really think funky when I think either of Eddie Van Halen as a guitarist or Van Halen as a band. But this? Yeah, I can groove to this, and it might be my favorite thing on 5150. Now lyrically, I'm not sure the song is really about anything other than the guys kinda goofing around or maybe recovering from partying too hard. I can't imagine this is what Eddie had in mind when he wanted to write more serious songs. I also don't care. I think it's the very superstitious style bassline and the speak-sung chorus that drew me in, along with the banter to start and throughout the whole song. According to a Classic Rock magazine article reprinted on Louder Sound, the song is just the band making fun of David Lee Roth. Turns out they weren't particularly fond of him and he did not leave on the best of terms. Sammy Hagar, for his part, didn't really have any strong feelings one way or the other, outside of thinking he was a superior singer to Roth, but being the team player he was, an enemy of Van Halen's was an enemy of Hagar's too. Anyway, here's a bit more of Inside, just to prove that it does turn into something resembling an actual song. Now listen here. it's not what you are, you see, it's how you dress. Cause that's one thing I learned from these guys, I must confess, you see. There's one other song I want to go over today. This is Love Walks In, another single and the most power ballad song on the album. This was also a hit for the band, matching the number 22 Hot 100 peak of Dreams. But the interesting part of this song to me is that, with the benefit of hindsight, it foreshadows where the band would go a few years later with the song Right Now. Which as an aside, I remember Right Now being a lot bigger than it apparently was, probably due to all those Crystal Pepsi commercials from the time. Believe it or not, we've covered two-thirds of 5150 as an album. It has nine songs on it and totals about 43 minutes in length, which is pretty typical for its time. So how did it do sales-wise? Well, it did pretty well. In fact, it did really well. According to Hagar, the album moved over a million units in its first week, but due to record label and chart weirdness, it wasn't until several weeks afterward that the album topped the Billboard 200. But top the Billboard 200 it did, giving Van Halen their first number one album. Now, while the album didn't ultimately sell as well as their debut or 1984, it did wind up going five times platinum in the U.S. as of 2004, presumably the last time the album was submitted for certification. Perhaps more importantly at the time, it far outsold David Lee Roth's competing solo album, Eat'em and Smile, which sold around one million copies in the U.S. 
Van Halen had survived losing one of Rock's iconic frontmen and hadn't missed a beat in the process. The Van Hagar era of Van Halen had three more successful albums through the end of the 80s and into the mid-90s, until Hagar left the band in mid-1996. After that, Van Halen pulled a publicity-slash-advertising stunt where they recorded two new songs to throw on a Greatest Hits compilation with David Lee Roth on vocals. Roth, for his part, insists that they told him he was back full-time. The band claims that's never what was discussed. Either way, after that, they hired extreme vocalist Gary Sharon. His tenure in the band did not go so well, although that wasn't entirely or arguably even mostly on him. At various points after that, Hagar and Roth took turns touring with Van Halen, but the band had been inactive since 2015. The last update to their website is on July 10th of 2015. Who really knows if they'll be back, since none of them are exactly young anymore. As for 5150, like I said, I'm not a Van Halen junkie or anything like that, but I like pretty much this whole album. It's got your hard rock, it's got your 80s synthy stuff, it's got your power ballad, it's got Inside... And I'm not sure what it says about me that that's one of my favorite songs on the album. But regardless, Van Halen came back as strong as they could in the wake of Roth's departure, and I'm glad they did. Thanks for listening to the Divisive Albums podcast. You can find the podcast on both iTunes and Stitcher, and if you like the show, please rate, subscribe, review, and all that good stuff. I have a website at MTI.com and a Twitter at MTI.com, M-T-I-D-O-T-C-O-M. I also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash MTI, and incidentally, thank you to Mercury Zelda for becoming a $5 patron. I think that means I can quit my job and do this podcast full-time. Finally, my wife Silver and I have started a podcast where we each pick an album and we both discuss our picks. That's called the Music for Two podcast, and you can get that at musicfortwopodcast.com.